Right. Okay. Ready for Michael. Okay. I'm, um, this is Mike Andrews, and he has been um, he's a HUD technical assistant and consultant who HUD has provided for us to help us as a as a housing authority and and us as a and you as a, a Marin Housing Commissioner Board to help us look at all of the different examples that we've been looking at and have him um, review them for us. So I'm going to have Mike take over. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Kimberly. Commissioners, again, my name is Mike Andrews, and I'm with a company called Structure Development Advisors. Um, and I'm here today working under a contract with HUD to provide technical assistance. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about my role in just, just a moment. Um, next slide. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, I'm going to walk through a handful of slides um, that touches on these six areas. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about my role. Uh, I'll touch on a couple of points to put the, the remainder of the slides in context. Um, I'll discuss the approach that was taken to take a look at the feasibility of the, the two scenarios offered. Um, I'll, I'll touch on three fundamental questions that were, that were asked and answered to determine uh, or, or to get to the idea of feasibility uh, for the, the Housing Authority Plan and the Resident Council Plan. Um, I'll review those findings and, and, and draw some conclusions. Next slide. So the, the role that I'm playing here today has three basic elements. Uh, first is to assist the Housing Authority in developing a financially feasible plan for Golden Gate Village. Um, within that, and I'll, I'll share a little bit more about some of the, the work that I've done with the Resident Council and the Housing Authority. Second is to support the Housing Authority's efforts in responding to HUD's corrective action plan, which was referenced before, which is an agreement signed between the Housing Authority and HUD that relates to the condition of Golden Gate Village. And then third is to provide feedback to HUD related to the feasibility of the proposed plans. A little bit about context that's relevant to the, the questions around feasibility. Um, Golden Gate Village is, is getting old. It's over 60 years old. It sits on a very large piece of land, roughly 30 acres. Um, in 2017, it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Those points are relevant. Uh, next slide, I'm sorry. Those points are relevant in thinking about what the likely construction scope will be and what the cost of that likely scope will be. The physical needs of Golden Gate Village are known by residents and the housing authority. There's been a lot of testimony about the residents' conditions in their units day to day. Uh, a lot of that is understood. There's also a lot of things that aren't yet understood because they haven't, the testing hasn't been done to open walls or to scope pipes to do the things that often get done in a renovation when you, when you discover what's behind walls or other surfaces that you can't see that have to get addressed during the scope of the renovation, but you haven't yet gone through the work, the design work to test those items to really understand what's the scope need to be. So there's a lot of unforeseen conditions. Um, again, the Housing Authority has a, uh, in place right now a corrective action plan with HUD, which has a deadline of submitting a financially feasible plan to HUD this month. And the current funding which the Housing Authority receives to run Golden Gate Village is inadequate to do all of the work that's been identified. Um, like with most housing authorities around the country, they don't get enough money from HUD month over month, year over year, to do all the work that has been building up uh, as these buildings have aged. And that's just a function of the public housing program nationally. And to one of the reasons why HUD has prioritized repositioning public housing the way that they have. 
Next slide. A little bit about the work that was done to complete this feasibility analysis. Um, a lot of information was gathered and reviewed. Uh, I've looked at the current and prior year funding levels from HUD to understand what the Housing Authority has been receiving from HUD uh, in its operating subsidy and its capital grant uh, and its levels of tenant paid portions of rents received over the years. So I can understand the money coming in and the money going out. I've read the physical condition reports that have been completed and also heard people explain and talk about their experiences in their units. I've looked at the resident demographics today to understand who lives there and uh, what type of housing service or what, how this, this housing fits into the needs of the local community. I've looked at the needs of the local community uh, to understand what are the general affordable housing needs in Marin County and how does Golden Gate Village fit into providing for a piece of the housing solution, the affordable housing solution needed. Uh, I've reviewed prior commitments and redevelopment plans that have can really touched on some of them. Um, I've read documents that relate to all of them. And I've looked at the Housing Authority's portfolio generally, its HUD scores, its prior annual plans, uh, to understand a little bit more about the history and the, um, the, the, the work that the Housing Authority has done. I've attended resident meetings that have been conducted on site. I've attended the Golden Gate Village working group meetings that Kyla and Kimberly had mentioned. I've participated through Zoom in the redevelopment subcommittee meetings uh, that the commissioners had mentioned. Uh, I've been to the site several times, um, attended resident council meetings, and I've also provided training to the resident um, council strategy team around a lot of these matters. A lot of the stuff that we've, we're talking about that's been presented and I'll talk about can get kind of technical. I'll try to keep it not so technical, um, but there's a lot to it. And if you don't do this every day, it might not be intuitive. So we've done a lot of work to help explain some of these processes to the strategy team to the, um, and to the residents alike. So the three fundamental questions that, that we looked at, is a limited equity housing co-op an effective affordable housing tool? Is Golden Gate Village eligible to re be redeveloped into a limited equity housing co-op model? And what redevelopment strategy is the most likely to result in the redevelopment of Golden Gate Village? And, oh, next slide, please. And therefore in the best interest of current and future residents and the Housing Authority. Next slide. So the, the housing co-op is an effective tool. It, it's a tool that's used around the country. Uh, it's a tool that has been used for a number of decades. So there's, there's, um, there's no question of whether it can be a good tool. Next slide. The next question is, is Golden Gate Village eligible to be redeveloped as a limited equity housing co-op? And the answer there is yes. There's nothing in federal or state code or statute that prohibits any public housing from being converted to a limited equity housing co-op. Next slide. We then got to the last question, which again is what redevelopment strategy is most likely to result in the redevelopment of Golden Gate Village and therefore complete the needed repairs that are in the best interest of the residents today and in the future and the housing authority in general. So basically this question is which of the strategies is most feasible to implement? So let me touch on a couple of pieces of that analysis to bring some of these numbers to, to light. Next slide, please. You've heard about the section 18 disposition process. That's one of several repositioning tools available from HUD to housing authorities to reposition their public housing. There's a number of criteria that relate to the eligibility for them. Um, section 18 is likely eligible uh, here at Golden Gate Village. And the, the determinant of eligibility is whether there's su uh, sufficient 
current needs in the physical property to qualify, and we believe that there is. You then look at what are the economic implications of the different converting, conversion tools. Here you see five different tools. Three of them, the Housing Authority is eligible for. Of those three, the Section 18 obsolescence tool, which is the Housing Authority is proposing, would result in the greatest revenue to the Housing Authority, that $11.2 million, um, which you, you can see highlighted there in orange. Um, the, what's, what's labeled wave or weighted average rent is just about $3,200 per unit per year in rent. That's the new revenue that Golden Gate Village would receive from HUD through the contracts that, that were mentioned before and I'll mention again to support the operations and attracting debt to the property. This slide, next slide please. This slide reflects the project-based voucher platform which Golden Gate Village would transition to when using Section 18. Couple of points about this slide that are important to make. On the left, you see two diagrams. The first illustrates what is there today. That's traditional public housing. A housing authority receives two types of capital or funding from HUD. One is called operating subsidy, the other is called capital grant. Housing authorities also receive rents received from the residents who live there. Those are the three types of money that housing authorities receive. You see on the right, the, the dollar amounts in 2022 dollars for what that, what that equals. It's about just under $1,600 per unit per month in revenue compared to what the just under $3,200 per unit per month would be under the Section 18 conversion. So this illustrates the, the idea that housing authorities receive money from HUD and from tenant paid portions of rent, but it's much different than what they would get through a reposition strategy. It's much different than what is needed to complete the adequate or to complete the necessary repairs of a building. What's also important about this slide is that the new Section 8 contract that was mentioned would be a local project-based voucher contract. That is different from what is sometimes talked about in this conversation, which is a project-based rental assistance contract. They sound similar, but they're very different. There's been some discussion about other co-ops that have used a Section 8 contract, and that is true. Ponderosa is an example of one of those here in Marin. Ponderosa has a project-based rental assistance contract that is not the same as a local project-based voucher contract. They're funded differently by HUD. They're regulated differently by HUD. They're appropriated differently by Congress. They have two different sets of rules. They have two different sets of everything. Um, what Section 18 gets you to is a local project-based voucher contract. That's important when we talk more about some of the feasibility and implementation of the resident council plan. Next slide. The illustration on the left is what you saw before presented by Tanya that illustrates a, a typical low-income housing tax credit scenario. Um, the illustration on the right reflects what the limited equity housing co-op scenario would look like. They're similar in some ways. Each of them have a um, local project-based voucher contract that would be a contract with the housing authority funded by net new housing choice vouchers provided by HUD. Each of them would have a sales agreement from the housing authority where the title to the uh, a fee interest or title to the improvements would transfer to the new entity. And each of them have a loan. Tanya had mentioned a, a lender uh, that, that would provide the roughly $100 million loan that was illustrated in the, in the um, housing authority financial plan a similar loan or a, 
a loan that would be repaid with with revenue would also be provided in the uh, or is, is proposed in the limited equity housing co-op plan. Another difference I want to point out in this slide that I believe is relevant to, to housing policy matters in Marin is that the Housing Authority Board, a public entity, would maintain governance and oversight of the managing general partner stake in this ownership entity. That means meetings like this would be meetings where business that is conducted on behalf of the limited partnership would occur. The board of the housing authority would act on behalf of the partnership as the managing general partner of the partnership. That means that the property remains to a degree in the public realm as it has been for the last 60 years. The property under the alternative model, under the, the resident council model is governed by a private corporation which doesn't function in the same way. It, it doesn't have the same public discourse as a public body. Next slide. This slide illustrates the sources and uses that are, that are um, I have been identified by both the Housing Authority and the Resident Council Plan. The column on the left you saw before and the, the numbers presented by Tanya, which total about $330 million. The numbers on the right were provided by the Resident Council and the Resident Council Strategy Team and total just about $160 million. Their plan represent, or, or, um, reflects also a gap of 26, almost $27 million. Their assumption is they could support debt of $132 million, the balance of which would need to be fundraised. In the next couple of slides, I'm gonna unpack a couple of key elements of, of these financial plans that go to feasibility. Next slide, please. The biggest expenditure in both of the plans is on the rehabilitation of the building. So on the rehab. And I talked before about the fact that the buildings are old, they're over 60 years old, that there's 30 acres of land out there. Under that land, there's sanitation pipes, there's water supply pipes, there's electrical system, all of which that serve the buildings, which have not yet been fully tested as they will ultimately need to be in order to determine their condition and what improvements are needed. Similarly, the buildings haven't been tested in that way yet either. So there's a lot of unforeseen conditions. The difference in the budgeted construction cost between the housing authority and the resident council plan is about $34 million. So the question on this slide isn't which construction number is the right number. The, the question I don't think is which number will ultimately be in the construction contract. I think the more important question is which plan is able to attract more capital to complete the needed rehabs in these buildings which are old, which have a lot of unforeseen conditions. The housing authority's plan is able to attract about $34 million worth of money to make improvements to these buildings. The next slide represents, uh, thank you. The next slide represents a couple of regulatory challenges that exist when you combine a limited equity housing co-op with a local project-based voucher contract. So we established before that it is, it is allowable for a public housing property to transition to a limited equity housing co-op. It is allowable for there to be a local project-based voucher contract. But there are some regulatory challenges in the implementation of that scenario that are important to highlight. It's also worth noting, we have not found an example of a public housing property that transitioned to a local project-based voucher contract. We have seen projects that have transitioned to a local project-based rental assistance contract. Again, different, different rules, different funding, different side of HUD. 
but have not found one that has this local project-based voucher contract. The two big implement the two big implementation differences I want to highlight are on the left. First is that the wait list is managed by the housing authority. And second is that a household must have the, the right size or right number of people in it to live in their unit. On the first point, the idea of the limited equity housing co-op is to instill an idea of ownership. It's the idea that you own a stake in the property. And technically speaking with the limited equity housing co-op, you own a share of the corporation. So for example, if I were to be a shareholder of this corporation, if I were to live in my unit, and if I were to pass away, I would have the right to pass on my share to my child. My child could then live in that unit if they were income eligible. There's nothing that prohibits that. So if I pass, I could pass on my share. By passing on the share, my child could live in that unit. However, it's not likely that my child was top on the wait list for the local project-based vouchers managed by the housing authority. What that means is that my child would have the right to live in that unit. However, the subsidy for that unit that comes from the local project-based voucher contract would not be available for that unit. That is a significant financial impact to that unit. My, my child could live in that unit. They'd pay their 30% of their rent. However, the operating subsidy would stop. If you expand that over that, that event occurring multiple times, there begins to be an economic impact to the, to the financial operations of the project. Second point is that households who um, live in a unit that is funded with a local project-based voucher contract have to be of the right size to live in those number of bedrooms. This is the same in public housing. It's the same in the Section A program generally. Under the Limit Equity Housing Co-op, if I lived in a unit with my children, and if my children grew up and moved out, and I, and I was in a three-bedroom unit, at the point that my children left, I would either have to leave my unit and move to the appropriate size unit, or the subsidy coming to support my unit would stop. So this creates a couple of financial feasibility issues that, that we've looked at to understand what are the economics of it. If 15% of the households in a property had that experience, that would be, pardon me, 5% of the households, that would be 15 units. And if you adjust the revenue received by the corporation to reflect that change, that would be a loss of debt capacity of about $7 million. So that loan of $132 million wouldn't be supportable. So knowing that going into it, you wouldn't take $132 million loan. You'd push that loan down a bit to a size that would be more uh, reasonably serviced with the available revenue. Um, or you would have an operating cash flow problem in your property. Both of those are significant financial issues. If you take those two things combined, um, if you take those two things combined, um, and there's beginning with a $27 million gap in the project. If you adjust that for the increased capital, which the housing authority is able to attract to the property of $34 million, and adjust that for the decreased loan amount that would likely be underwritten for the limited equity housing co-op model, the gap grows to about $68 million. So a couple of points in conclusion. Both Slide. Next, slide. Next slide. The Housing Authority's plan and the Resident Council plan attempt to aim to accomplish the same outcomes for the property. The Housing Authority's plan would result in re uh, affordability restrictions that will last for 55 years. Under the Resident Council plan, the third party regulations would be 30 years provided by HUD. 
under the resident council, under the housing authorities plan, the, the asset would remain in the public realm. So this board would still have oversight of the property. There'd be an additional $34 million of capital needed available to provide the, the renovations to the property and using a plan that is known uh, and well used in the state of California supported by HUD. Next slide. And one more, please. And it, in conclusion, I'll, I'll go to the last two points. Um, it, given the scenario, it's likely that HUD would not conclude that the resident council plan is financially feasible. The plan relies upon $68 million uh, in fa a fair analysis of additional fundraising that's needed to complete the necessary improvements. HUD has a corrective action plan with the housing authority asking the housing authority to submit a plan that shows how they're going to address these improvements. I don't believe that HUD would accept a $68 million in fundraising as a financially feasible plan. Secondly, the, uh, lastly, the, the Section 18 disposition application requires that the housing authority certify to HUD that the plan that it is, it is submitting is feasible and in the best interest of the residents and the housing authority. The resident council plan is presented with a $68 million gap. I think it, that certifying that that's the best and feasible approach by the housing authority to pursue is a, an important question for, this, for the board to pause and think about. So that's the analysis that, that was completed um, for the, the two scenarios provided by the housing authority and the resident council. Um, I appreciate your time and I'm available if there's any questions.